Welcome to season four of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. In this season, we're exposing the hatred that drives critical race theory and learning how to fight back with the decency of the human spirit. Today, we're interviewing Dr. James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, a platform he created in 2020 to expose the, quote, woke ideologies. Dr. Lindsay believes that there should be an opportunity for people to have new discourses around topics such as identity politics and politics more broadly. In today's episode with Dr. Lindsay, we'll dive into the crucial differences between the words equality and equity, and we'll explain how the concept of equality, along with individual liberty and freedom, gives all Americans an opportunity to succeed. This is the Right Idea Podcast. We're in Green Bay, and we're about to do a uh, critical race theory event, and I'm having one of our event speakers who's actually spoke uh, at our events at Pewaukee and as well to um, our event in Dane County, um, and we're thrilled to have him, Dr. James Lindsay. He's an incredible expert and a great speaker, and I've heard around the block that he's actually an even better interview subject than a speaker, which makes me very excited. So, uh, Dr. Lindsay, we are thrilled to have you here, and welcome to Green Bay. Is it your first time in Green Bay? Yeah, actually, I've only been in Wisconsin kind of once before I've come up with you guys. So okay. You guys have been wonderful hosts. It's a wonderful state. I've actually been talking all day about how impressed with Wisconsin I am. Oh, awesome. So I'm kind of falling in love with the state a little bit. Green Bay is wonderful. Yeah. Did you drive by Lambeau Field? Did you see it? Or, uh, or actually across the street. In oh, the you are? So okay, well, there you go. You it's have no right choice. out the door. <laughs> Yeah, it looks good. <laughs> it is. It's a sharp stadium, and uh, there's no doubt about it. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, and I want to start off and just give uh, many people that I think are listening to our podcast do know who you are because we have, uh, again, had such a great relationship with you and bringing you into the state. But you're the founder of New Discourses. Tell me a bit about what New Discourses is and, and, and frankly, why you founded it and what it does. Yeah, New Discourses is a platform I created to put out information about the, I guess the, the slang term, term is woke ideology as okay. fast as possible. I needed a platform to just put this information out as fast as I can research it and understand it. What happened was in 2017 and 18, I started to read into this literature the, the critical race literature, the gender studies literature, feminist literature, whatever, at the academic level. And mm-hmm. I, I tell people all the time, it's like I felt like I bought a property, and you're exploring the property, and you're like, oh, here's these nasty you know, wood pile, and you clean it up, and you're, here's this busted up shed, and you clean it up. What's under the tarp? And you pull under the tarp, and there's like, oh, dead bodies, you know. Uh-oh. And, and so that's what happened when I started reading this literature, and I realized, you know, this ideology has a lot of dangerous elements to it and I started to study it much more deeply and to write about it and then I I realized I need a platform dedicated to this project so I created new discourses at the beginning of 2020 to put this information out podcasts videos articles I'm writing an encyclopedia a lot of people are familiar they use words in strange ways like diversity doesn't seem to mean diversity inclusion (laughs) seems to mean exclusion and so I have an encyclopedia of of, of woke terminology on there that I, I put up. And I just wanted to get this information out free for as many people as possible. We're actually only just now, a year and a half in, experimenting. And I think we're going to take them down with having ads on the site. It's like, it's not what it's about. Right. Um, so the goal was to create that. The motivation was that this information, you know, you, there, there's tons of stuff. You can go read all the critical race theory you want, but you can't read anybody who's really deeply studied it or couldn't a year ago. There is now, but right. a year, year and a half ago, somebody who deeply studied it and doesn't agree with it. There was no informed opposition available anywhere. So I created the site to provide that. And to, of course, the name says to create the opportunity to have new discourses around these topics, sex, gender, sexuality, identity, politics, politics more broadly, et cetera. Right. And you're an author of several books. Yeah. And tell, tell us about those. So there are six currently in publication. Yeah. Um, the most recent and the most successful is Cynical Theories, which explores the postmodern philosophical roots of the woke ideology, which is maybe about a third of their ideological roots. Okay. It's a huge subject. Uh, so that book, it turns out, has been a acclaimed bestseller it's now translated into something like 17 languages we have a young adult version coming out this fall so it's been adapted to an easier read um for a broader audience Mm -hmm. it's uh 
It was bestseller with USA Today, Publishers Weekly. So it's been very successful. I think I just heard that it sold over 160,000 copies in a year. So that's been really great. Uh, I wrote a book before that called How to Have Impossible Conversations, which is about how to dialogue with people who disagree with you, which is a little bit ironic because a lot of people have run into the fact that the techniques of dialogue don't seem to work with (laughs) this particular ideology. They don't like to talk. They don't like to talk. They don't like to discuss or debate. Um, There are lots of reasons. We could talk about those at some point if you want, but there are lots of reasons why they don't in the ideology. It's important to talk about, yes. Yeah. um, In fact, they're collaborating with the enemy if they're, in a sense, if if they sit down and have a dialogue because they're letting those views be aired. Right. Um, We could, I don't know how deep we want to go, but we could even go back to the 60s. Herbert Marcuse, the famous neo-Marxist, the big, the father of the new left, as it's called, Mm Uh, wrote an essay in 65 called Repressive Tolerance, and he mm-hmm. said that you have to, their, their religion, in a sense, their political religion, in a sense, right. works this way, is that he says you have to stop the thought from entering the head of the reactionary. So whether that's censorship or even pre-censorship, he calls it, it doesn't matter. You have to stop the thought from even entering the head. So there'd be no way that like, if you were uh, a, you know, a woke social justice warrior or what Mm -hmm. what have you, you would sit down with me to talk about Mm -hmm. it because every time I get to say, yeah, but what about this? Or I say, what about that? And I bring up the alternative point. You've now created a platform. You've become an accessory to putting that thought out into other people's heads. That's just one reason. Um, There's even a concept they have in their, they're kind of in the fringes of their literature called non-consensual co-platforming, which is if you and I were on opposite sides. Such terrible wording, but please continue. If you and I were on opposite (laughs) sides of this issue and we say both got published, say there was Time Magazine or something had a debate issue. And so we're going to have critical race theorists and somebody responds. Well, if, if, if they didn't know that it was going to be set up to where different people would be involved in or if they didn't know everybody was going to be there mm-hmm. or if they thought they were just you know this has actually happened it's where the term came from people were asked to contribute to essays about a topic not knowing it was a debate issue mm-hmm. and so there were mm-hmm. pro and con right views and they complained and said this is non we've been co-platformed with the enemy non-consensually <laughs> and so they're very sensitive to that um so well, it reeks of a couple of things, which I think uh, we should talk about. It reeks of one, sure, certainly, lack of confidence in the uh, the intellectual foundation of their ideas. Because if you're afraid of debate and afraid, if you're afraid of co-platforming, that means that you're not very confident in the foundation of your ideas. But also, there's a larger sense too, and it's happening with the attempted uh, limitation of of language, the limitation of the ability to speak, the permeation of threats that come into employment or education. It is an end around on the First Amendment in so many different ways. That's right. They can't get rid of the First Amendment the way that they would have to through constitutional amendment. So it's an attempt to say we're going to limit speech through all these other other different mechanisms if they can. That's right. Yeah. I mean, all the things that I just explained are rationalizations. Mm-hmm. You know, another one would be that they would say that debate is a tool that was created within the confines of white supremacy and patriarchy. <laughs> and so it reproduces those power dynamics even to engage in a debate. So they would say that it, it, it creates it, it's for forcing them to play in an unlevel playing field mm-hmm. to have a debate, for example. But these are all just rationalizations. It's like you said, is they are convinced that they have the incontrovertible truth mm-hmm. and um, anything that, that might cause doubt or dialogue or anything like that is therefore a problem. It's a, it's a runaround, as you said, on the First Amendment. Right. And they, how do I want to say this? They, they are, are, are very concerned that people will see through the very shallow uh, foundations of their views, um, the, the very superficial nature of their views. So they, for example, if it's a race issue, they don't want to get anybody digging too deeply into statistics mm-hmm. because the facts are not on their side and the, the data don't support many of their arguments. And if you do right. careful analyses and control for various things, yeah, racism sometimes shows up, sometimes, mm-hmm. but usually it's something else it's usually something about economic status or something about family environment or quality or of education quality of education yeah right. lots of lots of other variables right. and responsible statisticians when they do this find that the, the the effect that they're claiming whether it's systemic racism or patriarchy or whatever drops not necessarily to zero but to close to zero mm-hmm. and that's very upsetting to their the <laughs> idea that this is the central construct that explains all in all inequality and must <laughs> right. be centered in every dialogue right um so yeah they, they 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 really want to be able to just put forth their views but on a deeper level also 
because they use words in a tactically misdefined way, <laughs> there isn't really a conversation to have. If you and I are trying to have a conversation about inclusion, mm-hmm. for example, and you mean something completely different than what I mean <laughs> right. by the word, we're not having a conversation about the same thing. Right. Um, other philosophers would say that we don't have shared intentionality about mm-hmm. the concept. You know, Maybe John Searle would point out that we, we're not talking about the same idea. Um, and Searle I bring up because he was a great destroyer of Jacques Derrida, who was one of these people that said, well, when I, it's basically Humpty Dumpty from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> when I use a word, it means exactly what I mean. And, but, but it was it's sort of the other way around from that, I should say. For, for Derrida, it was whoever, whoever interprets the word, whoever reads the word, whatever they think it means, that's what it really means. Mm. So, you know, if I say potato, and you think potato is somehow a slur against Irish people or an exclusion of black people from mm-hmm. some old fight between Irish people and black people in 1840, you know, or whatever, then all of a sudden I can't disagree, you know, I was like, no, it's just really talking about tubers. Um, For Derrida, there had been no disagreement, but the point isn't Derrida or Searle or any of these people. It's that if we don't have an agreement about what the words mean, there's not really a dialogue anyway. And so much of the strategic manipulation done through this ideology is done through the strategic manipulation of language. Language. So, for example, they'll say, well, we want inclusion, and they kind of let everybody just believe that, oh, that means letting everybody be included. We don't want anybody to feel like they're excluded. Mm-hmm. And then they get it written into policy and then pop on the other side once it's policy, and now they have institutional power with that term. Now it means something specialized. Right. Now it means, oh, you can't offend certain people even by your mere presence. So maybe it's um, censorship. Mm-hmm. So you don't say things that mm-hmm. offend certain people, but other people you can offend all you want. Right. Or maybe it's even... You know, the idea that a white person always carries with them the air of white supremacy. And so if there are people of color around in a room and a white person enters that room, they now have to bow to white supremacy. Oh, so now we have to justify excluding white people from the spaces entirely. And that's that sounds preposterous in the abstract. But it's happening. But it's literally the logic that you see on yes. college campuses Correct. where they're having these segregated um classrooms, segregated trainings in, in workplaces too, segregated graduations, mm. and then they have these spaces set aside in, in you know, that are like black only spaces, which, you know, I think violates the Civil, Civil Rights, Rights Act pretty clearly. <laughs> uh, I just did a TV interview before you walked in here, and uh, the reporter asked, like, like how, do you def- how do you define it? I said, well, you know, first off, it is Marxism translated to race. And there's certain words that are used, but ultimately it's violations of the Civil Rights Act. And that's right. It's so important that right. we say that. I, I know you say it. I think it has to be said three billion times. That's right. Until the lawyers have sued, you know, the garbage out of it, all of this. Stuff. And and for the lawyers that are interested, they have to be very tactical in how they approach this because it's not just violations. They're very tactical. They follow certain jurisprudence that has redefined discrimination that, that, that allows you to identify discrimination as having occurred if there are disparate impacts by group. Yeah, right. And so intention has been taken out of it. Right. And so the tactical goal not only to, should be to damage people in violations of the Civil Rights Act to keep them in line with that, to get that covered equally, but also to take this idea of the protected class mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. that there needs to be put intentionality back. Disparate impact does not create a protected group. And so uh, for our audience, define disparate impact, because I think it's a very important thing to understand. It's being used in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. Right now. So disparate impact, the way that they use it is like if they look at the group, the you know very coarse group identification averages. Mm-hmm. So you say, let's look at the SAT scores, and maybe white people score, you know, I don't know, just make up numbers. I don't know these off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. 1,200 on average, and black people score 1,100 on average. Well, that's a group average difference in outcomes, mm-hmm. disparate mm-hmm. outcomes. And so th- under current um, judicial, under, under cur- current legal thinking, that difference can be in institutional settings attributed to racism. You could, you could actually say, well, racism, even if you don't know where it is, that racism must right. be present because the on average outcomes were different. It doesn't matter what the actual causes are. They can all right. be kind of lumped in. And it, that's actually the functional definition of so-called systemic racism. Mm-hmm. It means that certain on average group differences exist. And this can range from educational outcomes like you're talking about to loan disbursements Mm -hmm. to uh, analyses of where different people live who happen to have different demographics. Yes. And to your point, it's being used in certain veins of legal thought, but it's being used by government bureaucrats, too, to say, 
like literally, we want people to live different places. So we will mandate by federal order the construction of, you know, uh, certain types of homes in order to get people to move. And if you think again, the, the removal of intentionality of all the reasons people choose to everything, live where they live, why they're scoring the way they are in tests and all things which should be thought about for sure. And we should analyze like intelligently and understand like how do we make a better world? All that stripped away. And exactly. it's just a mechanism now for certain actors in the left, the government to take actions that they want to. Right. And it, it, of course, just to point it out is when I was very cautious with how I phrased it, I didn't say that there are differences in outcomes on average. There are certain ones mm-hmm. because there are this kind of this kind of understanding of of protected classes so for example i mentioned say i i don't know what the real numbers are but we're we're going to just use 1200 for white people 1100 for black people on the sat well asians asian americans are maybe 1400 Mm -hmm. and so they're outperforming whites and i think there is something there's a large number it's almost 17 or 16 or something like this racial groups that are recognized that outperform whites in the united states now that is not systemic racism against whites that's not possible (laughs) instead through critical race theory analysis, they're saying that those Asians are participating in whiteness. And so that whiteness becomes the thing that gets scapegoated. It gets turned into a weird synonym for being successful Mm -hmm. or that which allows somebody to be successful in society. So you can kind of see the Marxist idea, having bourgeois values allows you to be successful. Having Mm -hmm. access to whiteness allows you to be successful. Mm -hmm. And the people excluded from that are alienated from it. And so it's not all of these, it's not any difference right Right. it's not any difference it's only in fact when it can be theoretically tied to the idea of whiteness and anybody who's succeeding according to that is oppressing everybody else below and so it's a very and this is this is concrete okay so this isn't just again abstract you can look for example at what they're doing with admissions and and higher education harvard is i think under a lawsuit for this or either that it just got dropped or something Mm -hmm. peculiar and um they're actually discriminating pretty vigorously in a lot of higher education, the Ivy League in particular, against Asian Americans right. who are actually doing extraordinarily well on, on merit-based admissions mm-hmm. to their tests it's to the point where now they're like, well, let's get rid of the merit-based admissions. Mm-hmm. You see this in the specialized high schools also um, right. in New York City, et cetera, where it used to be an admissions test, and now they're doing these more subjective analyses, right. and the reason is because they're 73% Asian all right. of a sudden, so they're using it to discriminate. And so then we have, you know, not to play too much in the hip hypocrisy game or whatever, but the Democrats got all worked up and over the summer and the stop AAPI hate bill they put forth and it was at the Senate and then Ted Cruz didn't get nearly enough attention for this. It's one of the biggest things that happened with Mm -hmm. regard to critical race discussion and nobody knows about it. And if I'm not wrong, it was Senate Amendment 1456. As a matter of fact, he amended the stop AAPI hate bill that was brought up before the Senate to say, okay, you want to stop AAPI hate? Colleges and universities are no longer allowed to discriminate against Asian Americans <laughs> at all right. based on race. And it was a party line vote. Every single Democrat who voted, which was like all but one or two of them, voted against it. Okay. Every single Republican voted to add that amendment to stop the discrimination in colleges. So you can see that it's like this idea of systemic racism isn't something that's being just like so many of these other concepts that's being forwarded honestly right it's a concept that's being forwarded as a tool to work around something else in this case the civil rights act or even the equal protection clause Mm -hmm. and it's insane and again well first off it's a huge step backward in terms of societal evolution and all the progress that's been fought for in the united states to extend the promise of our country to everybody uh but to your point in in any time when you see this level of complexity whether that complexity exists in regulatory matters or in terms of restrictions on language, which frankly just shouldn't happen in the United States regardless, but it is an attempt to transfer power to one group of people so they can have leverage over others. That's right. That's why it exists. If you ever want to launch a business in India, you'll find there's a lot of red tape there. Unfortunately, we have a lot of red tape here now too, but that transfers power to bureaucracy. That's Um, right. And as you just walk through the examples you're walking through, you're talking about so much complexity, and you think about average, average people living their lives who don't have time to fight this on everything, you know, every day of their life and every single measure, and feel this oppressive beatdown coming to basically put them in their place. That is the goal of the people that are doing this, and that's one of the things where, yeah, you know, it's important to point that out to people. If you feel that pressure, 
that's intentional on the part of the yeah. people that are doing this. You know, this is the hardest part for me to communicate to people and get them to see it. Even people who are pretty savvy now to the ideas of critical race theory or whatever mm-hmm. else is that the, the the destruction and the demoralization are the point. Mm-hmm. Their goal, it's not, it's not, people are always, well, how is this supposed to work? And it's like, no, you're in the wrong frame. <laughs> it's not supposed to it's work. It's not supposed the to work. The point exactly. is for it to not work. Right. And... I've given this analogy, and you know, I, I don't have the the cojones, as it were, to stand up on a stage and actually bring a prop and do this. <laughs> but I think it would be a beautiful visual. Um, so I just always talk about it. But it's these critical theories of identity or whatever else. The way they work is you can picture they they literally talk about the fabric of society all the time. Mm-hmm. So what what's a good visual metaphor is the American flag. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine American flag, and you know care as much as you want nothing's made perfectly and if you look close enough and you use a magnifying glass you're going to find a loose thread here or mm-hmm. there so what they're doing is they're looking for that loose thread so they can pull it right and they want to pull that thread until two of the stripes aren't connected anymore or one of the stars falls out yep or the blue field falls off entirely or the whole thing disintegrates that's the goal the point of a critical theory is to look as closely at the fabric of the flag or the society as you can to find the loose threads to tug on them. And I always think of that Weezer song at this point, you know, just hold the thread and let them walk, you know, and it's just going to unravel. And that's the goal. And this is, so people don't understand that, that the objective of the ideology is to take the existing system and tear it apart enough to make it dysfunctional enough, to make the people miserable enough to where they can get a small contingent that won't be opposed, that can then put themselves in power and do whatever they want. Right. And that's it. And it, it's an isolating feeling. It separates people from their neighbors. It separates them from cultural institutions, if you think about it. And, and I think that's why what you've said is so important, pulling those threads. Uh, think about how people feel about sports teams, mm-hmm. that they didn't feel just four or five years, something which was purely fun and entertainment, something that actually did bind people together. Yeah. Maybe it's not an important thing, but it's a thing that people cared about. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, it's a point of contention. Yeah. It doesn't feel good the way that it used to. Right. Because literally, your team could be insulting your country while you're watching them. Yeah. And it's that disassociation that creates an extra step of unhappiness. I even saw something, I don't remember if it was the Latinx Bowl or the Latinx something, the Latinx game for some team yesterday mm-hmm. on Twitter. And so now everybody has to polarize around the idea of if they think Latinx is stupid or not. And, uh, and it's injected into your life. And there it is, it every single thing. Right. And this idea of tearing people apart and isolating is so important. I was actually speaking at lunch with this, this uh, mom who is very active here in Wisconsin in the school boards and uh, taking the fight to the schools. And she was saying that a kind of watershed moment in her life was, it was, you know, parents, everybody was scared to let their kids play together with mm-hmm. COVID. So it's not quite the same as critical race theory, but it's all in the same kind of umbrella mm-hmm. of separating and isolating separating and driving and people nuts and demoralizing them. And she said, finally, what happened was she and some other moms, they got talking one day and it was like, yeah, your kids can play with my kids. Yeah, I don't care. And all of a sudden they both felt that way, but didn't know it. And now their kids are all like the whole neighborhood's playing together again. Right. And it's like, you can just see because the kids are playing together. The parents are like making dinner for each other and, right. you know, they're taking care of you. Oh yeah. You you know, go run your errands. I'll watch the kids. And it's community is knitting back together. Right. And that fear just to say, oh, well, I don't know if people are going to lose it if my kids hang out with your kids. Because what if the virus spreads or mm-hmm. what if Johnny's a racist or whatever? Mm-hmm. All of that is a very intentional means to tear our communities apart, to keep us locked into our cell phones, staring at a screen. Right. The, the black mirror, as they say, mm-hmm. you know isolated from one another, not connecting to one another, and getting fed a steady diet of radicalizing material. Right. Well, so you, yes, you touched on a couple things. I was, I was talking to someone earlier today having a very similar conversation. So, one, the isolating factor of what has happened over the last year and a half plus now, yeah. which has physically separated us from each other. Two, I don't think a lot of what we're dealing with today happens without this device that I'm holding in my hand pumping these ideas into people in a way that, I mean, think about how the old Soviet commentary would feel about having these devices in people's pockets. Oh, yeah. And how important, I mean, think about the things they would have pushed in, if they could. I mean, I've been to China. I know the things you, they, you I see know what's the things there they today. Push. Yes, exactly, yeah. right, modern day. Like, you literally might not be able to pay for your thing until you watch, like, a propaganda video if your social credit's off or whatever. And in, in the social credit store, score being something which, again, you can see coming through social media in this country too and yeah. being used to, to leverage power over people. 
and I, I think that that is so important to just kind of peel this onion back to see, okay, where does it come from, which you're talking about? How is it delivered, which is also important too? And again, I think there's a fair amount of America that, again, these Marxists have been working at trying to get their way for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Marxism, as it traditionally existed between classes, did not take hold in the United States for the most part because people can achieve their dream here. So yeah. it's very hard to convince them they can't because they know they can go and do it. That's right. That's right. But they worked. And now they worked at it, they worked at it, they worked at it, it didn't take. And now they've found that they can transition to race. Yep. And in the moment that existed, again, it's not that they weren't working on it before. They've been working on it for a very long time, yeah. which I think is frustrating for so many millions of Americans to say, why weren't elected officials paying attention to it? How did this seep into every aspect of education and everywhere else? Um, but they kept pushing. And then the moment of separation that happened with COVID COVID is a real thing. It is a public health issue, but the lockdowns were disastrous and yeah. they had long-term negative effects that we're yeah. not going to get through for a while because we, the, the problems stick with us. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, to the point, I mean, they, they were saying that, that communism would take America in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. We will get it. They were talking about race being the vector very early on. I mean, you, you have, People like uh, Dr. Bella Dodd, who was a Communist Party leader who defected and confessed everything to the House Committee on Un-American Activities in the 50s, 53 and 54. Mm-hmm. She gave her testimonies to the House and to the Senate. She wrote a book also. You had, um, um, what's his name? Uh, I always forget his name, and then I remember it right when we're done. <laughs> but he, he was the leader of the black aspect of the Communist Party in the 50s also, uh, Manning Johnson. Okay. And so he, same thing, he got eyeballs deep in it and then he realized what it was and he they were what it what red pilled him in the 50s fashion was that they were trying to manipulate the racial minority groups to become marxists right and then you read in the night the literature of the 1960s uh from the the frankfurt school the neo-marxists the critical theorists so you have horkheimer gave an interview in 69 where he says you know marxian theory marx said that the capitalism would immiserate the society would make everybody miserable he was wrong (laughs) this society allows people to build a better life and he's basically like that's terrible because now we can't have a revolution and Herbert Marcuse's writing in 69 also, he says, oh, in 64, 65, and 69, actually, he's like, well, the advanced capitalist society we have in America is a very stabilizing force for the working class. It allows them to buy the things they want, allows them to have a comfortable life, and this is a disaster because their basic needs are met, and now they're just going to have new needs, and capitalism's just going to keep expanding, and everything's going to keep getting better, and there'll never be a revolution. He says, well, we, he actually says, we have to find a new working class, and then what does he say to look for it? In his exact words, the ghetto population. And he said, we're going to fuse them with the student intelligentsia. In other words, the college students, the radical college students of the 1960s, the wild 1960s, they're going to radicalize them to be the outreach to the angry black power movement of the 60s, the the so-called ghetto populations. And you can actually see the seeds of the critical race theory, the identity politics-based Marxism being born in the 60s because their complaint was, Believe it or not, their complaint was American society, American capitalism works. It works. It stabilizes <laughs> society was their main complaint. It, and it empowers people. And yeah. And it, it is so important. That's, I mean, no matter friend, we, we share the fact that we believe that the, the concepts, the ideas that underpin America empower people. We need to explain that to people over and over again in order so that they don't lose it. But that really, it, it is so important to get that message across to people that at the end of the day, the system that in, that ensures that everyone understands that our rights are given to us by God, they don't get the government doesn't get to take them away, has empowered uh, a creation of wealth on a scale that, that no one ever had seen before in humanity. It's because people were empowered. And these people are upset about that because it stops them from taking power back. Yeah, they even argue that when, what you have is the peasant class. They talk about the peasants. This is more this is more the Brazilian context. This is Paulo Freire, who basically poisoned the world's education system. Uh, he's a Marxist educator. Uh, his famous book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is basically the like Bible of all teaching colleges now. But he's on the same page with, you can read it in different words from Marcusa and these other guys that we just talked about. Same time, 60s, early 70s. 
and what they were saying is the path out of dependency really is taking responsibility. But what Marcuse would argue or Freire would argue is, but that means taking responsibility in this current system, which is the thing we have to overthrow. <laughs> and so if we, if you become part of the system, you know, he says then it, then it interjects its values into you and you continue reproducing those values. And you can hear that same language, yes, you know, you oh, people are mm-hmm. reproducing white supremacy. They're reproducing patriarchy by not becoming, you know, flop out revolutionaries who right. are angry at everything, who don't want to take responsibility, who want to, because there are, in a sense, two paths out of dependency. One actually is to take responsibility if you have, say, guarantees of life, liberty, and property, mm-hmm. like John Locke brought to the to the enlightened West, right. which the American project was founded upon. Right. You can take responsibility if you have access, if you don't have any access to, to life, liberty, and property, you probably aren't going to have very much success with that. That's the right. problem of, of the feudal system. Right. Or you can blow up the system. Yep. And if you are literally, like you read these kind of revolutionary counter-colonialists or liberationists from the 60s, and they're very clear, you know, in the colonized situation, they say, you know, they don't have any other options. They have to go radical. They have to overthrow the corrupt government. And you can even look at the American Revolution and see seeds of that. So there are two ways out. Mm-hmm. But the thing, the question is, did the system, is the system you're rebelling against working or failing? Yes. And those right. systems were failing. And the argument of the people who say blow up the system was specifically, this is a functional society that produces prosperity. It creates a stable system. Um, Marcuse even says it becomes a moral obligation to fight against a functioning, prosperous society. And it's maddening. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. That it, <laughs> There's the, no other way to say it. And uh, the smug uh, air of intellectual superiority that comes with all this nonsense, to know that it is, and I think this is so important to say, I try to say it as often as I can, that there's nothing new about this garbage. It's been happening a long time. And to your point, I think you've done a great job of illustrating it, like these methods have been used by communists, dictators, uh, feudal lords for a long time. Um, I think one of the things that people forget is even in the Soviet Union, there was absolutely attempt by the communist government of the Soviet Union to sow seeds of ethnic discord in that mm-hmm. country in order to keep power over people. Yeah, people um, don't know that it happened in China, too. That China, before the Cultural Revolution, before the Great Leap Forward was mm-hmm. even attempted, they had this whole fight between the Han race and the other 55 races of minority races of China. Right. And they appointed people, I mean, terms you hear straight out of critical race theory, they had good Hans mm-hmm. instead of good whites. <laughs> and they had, you know, Han supremacy instead of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. They had exactly parallel concepts, but for the Han race, they did the same, de- and it was the communists who brought it into China, right. the same ethnic destabilization. The same attempt to draw solidarity across the minority groups with a vanguard within the majority group that's going to now have the correct ideology. You know, whether it's Marcuse's radicalized students, whether it's the students of those students like Robin D'Angelo today, who are blatantly white women that are race hustling with the best of them. Right. And uh, it's, you know, you've got that enlightened vanguard that was that was Lenin's idea. And it's a, you kind of have to have that. Their complaint was that the working class is basically too stupid to wake up for itself. So when you translate that into race, though, what are they saying? Oh, well, the racial minorities are too stupid to wake up for themselves. So we need to have the college students, the enlightened professors, come in and tell them how oppressed they are. And when, you know, it sounds disgusting when you say it that way, and then you realize that's exactly what they think. They don't write it down anywhere, but that's exactly what they think. Condescension, belittling of people, uh, manipulation of people. And at the end of the day, leaving people in a worse position than they were at initially. That's right. That is the truth. And we do a lot of work on education reform. We believe school choice is important because it creates a marketplace. It Mm -hmm. doesn't solve every problem, and we never pretend it does. But we do think we have to actualize and empower people to make rational decisions in their life that can help get kids into a different environment and change the trajectory of their life. That's a real thing, and it allows people that. Again, attempting to manipulate people, using them as political pawns, and ultimately trying to take agency and choice away from them, right. which is exactly what these people do that, yeah. that are the proponents of critical race theory, literally leaves people in a worse position. Yeah, and because we have a, to make this clear. A, a racial consciousness means that you know what critical race theory says people in your racial position are supposed to think, and that's mm-hmm. how you talk. And that's why if you step out mm-hmm. of line, whether that's Kanye West whether that's, you know, Nicki Minaj now or whatever, all on Twitter the last few days, 
whatever the situation is, if you step out of your your lane, all of a sudden, you know, your lived experience doesn't mean anything anymore. That thing that was your golden ticket to never be wrong, well, you aren't Gets expressing it authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, things that, speaking of stuff that, you know, I like to say a lot, and you're talking about this kind of not helping anybody, I, the easiest type of equity to achieve is everybody gets nothing, right? <laughs> it's very important to understand that. Equal right. access to nothing is much easier. <laughs> everybody gets an F is easier than everybody gets an A. That's true. And you see this literally in our schools, right? right? You're getting rid of the advanced placement getting classes. Getting rid of the advanced placement classes. You're, you're no yes. longer, I just was told, you know, from several different people in different states, North Carolina, here in Wisconsin, and a couple of other states, in the schools now, they're, almost all the projects turn out to be group projects. Mm-hmm. And so everybody gets the same grade. <laughs> when the pandemic first hit and everything was like, what do we do about grading? And I get it, it's a hard question, what do we do? It was, well, let's give everybody an A. What was the justification? Equity, why? Right. Well, the lower your GPA, the more it'll bring it up. Yeah. So it helps the people who have the worst GPA the most, and it doesn't hurt the people with the good GPAs. And so what that's actually doing is um, demeaning what the GPA means, and right. so everybody gets equal access to less. Right. And this is, again, with communism. It's, it's the same it's a, project. It's a book that's been read before. This is a book that has been, yes. Um, Equity, let's, I want to talk about this. And, and I think it's 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 you live this and you talk about it so often so it's it's very obvious to you what the difference between equity and equality is but there's a lot of it's not coincidental there are two words that look the same physically right, right. <laughs> they they are they are intentionally being switched out yes and there's a lot of people in corporate america and and elsewhere education and the military who are just buying into that hook line and sinker sinker in part because of the and I, I know this sounds ridiculous, the similar sound of the word. Yes. But talk about the difference between those two words. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places I can go with this. Mm-hmm. Um, just to put it out very simply, equity means equality of outcomes, and they will, and the reason I started to, to hesitate before I spoke, boldly forward or whatever, uh, <laughs> equity is, is socialism, but with, with identity characteristics factored in. That's right. what it is. Right. It is socialism. And so, uh, and I distinguish that from communism specifically. It is the path toward communism, which Mm. they call justice. And so um, it is enforced equality of outcomes Mm. by group averages. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's difficult because if you say that to somebody who is a proponent of this equity or critical race theory, they say, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's equality of access. (laughs) But the way that they measure if access was equal is if the outcomes are if equal. If the outcomes are equal. So they, they <laughs> have, they've hidden the ball right. a little bit there. That is actually how they measure the, right. where we started before with disparate impact. Right. Their assumption, and this is what Ibram Kendi actually says, is you're either saying there's something wrong with the system or you're saying there's something wrong with the people. Right. So if there's equal access, that's what they say is equity, and there's nothing wrong with the people, mm-hmm then you must have equal outcomes. So if there are no equal outcomes, you know, they do the logic backwards and they're like, aha, there must not have been equal access. So that's how they trick you with the, it's another linguistic trick. Right. Because the way that they've set up the measurement tool is bogus. Right. They don't allow any other possible explanation. Now, equity comes from the distinguishing paper was written in, I think in 1968 by H. George Fredrickson or something like okay. this. I might have that name wrong. Fredrickson is certainly right. The first middle name I may not have right. Okay. Uh, but it was in 1968, and it's, it's something about social equity theory, something or another. And he actually says in there that where equality means that citizens A and B are equal, citizens uh, equity means citizens A and B are made equal. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the original use, academic use, of the term equity in the sense that it gets used. Right. They're made equal. All they've done is figure out how to take that idea of equality of outcomes, enforced equality of outcomes, and hide the ball in the word access by this disparate outcome argument that if, and this is an assumption, but they just take it as a as a truth, if everything is totally fair in the system, or the school system, the employment system, whatever, then the outcomes would be equal if the access is equal. That's their 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 right. logic. The logic. But that's not actually necessarily true, and it doesn't have to do anything with the people in the sense that would be, say, something to do with race or whatever. I feel this particularly poignantly coming from Appalachia, mm-hmm. filled with white hillbillies, and I don't mean that in a disparaging sense, but many of the same 
disparate outcomes for white hillbillies occur that are typically associated with, you know, say the black inner city. And there you're talking about all the other the factors, quality of educational institutions mm-hmm. that are available. Uh, for example, if, say, over the past year you live in a city like Milwaukee where violence and murder rates have doubled yeah. and is psychologically affects you on a daily basis that's like, right. like you like it would anybody that's right um, that's going to have an impact in your educational performance and attainment and all the rest or for that example or for that example if your school system like Milwaukee Public Schools shut down for a year let no one come in person and other schools continued to perform. I know it's That's a right. very rudimentary example, but no, it's true. these are the other things that are happening in the world right, right now right. that everybody on the left is trying to ignore and pretend is not happening. Right, right. And so, you know, there are lots of arguments for why different people might struggle. Mm-hmm. There are lots of reasons that aren't just discrimination that might explain equal access, not necessarily equal outcomes, right? right. And we just touched on some of those. You know, in Appalachia, and I won't take it any further than that, but there's, you know, a cultural element where there's like this pride in not being educated, right? It's if you get too educated, you've lost your common sense, you've lost your roots, you've lost your connection to the mountain, as it were, mm-hmm. and you you basically abandoned your family. So it's like the priority is not put on that. They put priority on other things. Whether you, well, you're getting to cultural underpinnings, which is so important, right? And it goes back to what you shared before, which, you know, the critique of quote-unquote whiteness. And again, what they're really trying to critique is like the underlying cultural foundation of America that says work hard, you will have the opportunity to do what you want. That's which, right. by the way, doesn't mean everyone needs to become a millionaire to be successful. If you get to work a job you like and you get to go fishing on the weekends and you get to shut down at 5 p.m. and be with your family, like that is a better life than all but a tiny, minuscule fraction of humanity has ever had. That's right. And it's awesome if that's what you want to do with your life. That's what they complained about in those papers in the 60s. I mean, they literally said stuff like this. Like, oh, you can buy your cool, you can go work a job that you enjoy and buy your cool car, but you're just participating in the system that is your oppression, (laughs) and you like it. And it's totally understandable. uh, Because those people had, especially by that point, in that time frame, survived the Depression, World War Two, and maybe fought in Korea as well too. And, and you see why you'd want a nice job. Just let car. people watch their TV and <laughs> fix up their Corvette or whatever, man, and move forward in life. And meanwhile, you had and, and they did incredible work. Civil rights activists like Martin Luther King saying, "And extend that promise to everybody." That's right. That's and they right. Did and they did the hard work of it. And part of that again is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm-hmm. and it's a part part of America's maturing and becoming again a land that extends freedoms to everybody. And we fought for it, and we achieved it. Yeah. And now to see these steps taken backwards, it is the words you and I used before. It's infuriating. It's sickening. And yeah. And it's all being done in pursuit of power. And power, that's right, yeah. And power for a certain, and I'll use this word with my tongue in my cheek, enlightened class <laughs> who have got the right degrees. Right. A lot of people don't realize that those degrees are in, to use a term of art, poppycock. <laughs> <laughs> it's in BS. It's literally, I, I was a mathematician. Actually, no, I was a retired mathematician working as a massage therapist. And... We were able to write 20 full-blown academic articles. A sociologist said 12 of them would have been accepted <laughs> in the end of those 20 in one year, not knowing what we were doing at all. Which is an incredibly fast And of course, you might, the, only, you might only publish in a standard PhD for papers, depending on the, the topic. And so yeah, on. yeah. Typical. But I'm saying like that says a lot, that you could pump those out that we fast. We pumped out published. 20 in the first six. So you take out the first six, we were looking at the first six were the worst ones, obviously. We didn't know what we were mm-hmm. doing yet. Mm-hmm. So those all got rejected. You don't count those, 12 out of 14 were <laughs> on the way to, to, to acceptance. And it's like, okay, so people with degrees in that <laughs> are appointing themselves as like a new priestly class right. who gets to decide what is okay to say what is not okay to say who is okay to be employed you read like ibram kendi says how are we going to fix inequality says oh we need a constitutional amendment where we're going to put in you know anti-racism and all racism any disparate outcomes are going to be against the constitution (laughs) unconstitutional now to have differences in outcomes and how are you going to do it well we're going to appoint in his exact words are formally trained experts in racism it's literally that absurd and it's all like you said a power grab by people who are like, they're not even like, 
the B team, you know, right. getting to come out and play in the third quarter right, when right. things are way ahead. They're like, you know, like the Z string or something right. like that who who have figured out a way to manipulate language and emotions and moral authority in particular to make people feel dumb and to make people feel like maybe they did actually guilt. Yeah, maybe they did act in a racist way. Maybe they did have some of maybe they told some jokes when they were younger they shouldn't have told or I mean what's even shouldn't have for 20 years ago like <laughs> you know water under the bridge in a, in a sense but maybe they did some things in their life that they should feel guilty about or maybe they still and they they did so effective at manipulating and tapping into that and you know I think I actually have a very controversial view about this having read so much of their material I feel like they're describing their own circuit i feel like they've completely excluded conservatives from their worldview like uh, they're people way over there so they're only looking at themselves as the super progressives and then like the the good liberals around them and that's everybody because everybody yeah. else is already a monster you don't even pay attention to them and so it's like if you read white fragility by robin d'angelo and everywhere she says white people you replace it and i don't mean to make this political of course but if you replace it with white democrat or white liberal or white progressive it's like the book makes five times as much sense and my yeah. controversial belief having grown up in the southeast and i was actually on the blue side of the aisle for most mm -hmm. of my life battled in the south as it were <laughs> my belief is that conservatives due to maybe historical factors going back to the Civil War, but maybe also just due to the name-calling they've endured for 40 years, 50 years, have reckoned with their racism, and the good liberals, and this, by the way, is something that Martin Luther King brought up in Birmingham jail, haven't. Hmm. And so now, you know, they keep saying on the news, oh, it's a racial reckoning. Yeah, for them, <laughs> for the liberals who haven't realized that they've been, like, low-key racist for 50 years using the no I'm a Democrat so it doesn't count for me card to escape having to analyze. if you read it through that lens it's profound it's still Marxist so it's not good but it's profound how much more sense it makes and I have this very complicated view now that actually that's how it works is it's tapped into this you've had a group of people who since the Civil Rights Act's passed have been able to pass the buck and pretend no I'm not racist I'm not racist I've already dealt with it. I'm on the right side whereas every conservative has been getting called a Klansman or something world. like that from from birth mm -hmm. for 50 years so they've had am I what have I where's the line when's it right when's it wrong what's this you know working it out for themselves well there's also an element of conservatism and by the way this was a big deal in Wisconsin when I ran for the Senate I mean I was a college Democrat I was president of the College of Democrats of America when I was in school and uh, I figured out conservatism through life experience, but a big part of conservatism is expect is accepting the imperfection of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a rationalization that we are imperfect, uh, but we strive to do the best we can. Right. And and you brought up the idea of like, okay, so did you say or do something 20 years ago that was stupid? Okay, learn from that. And, right, right, you right. Know, teach your kids not to do it. Like, yeah. Be better as best you can and do the best you can in the circumstances you have. Yeah. But that is a big element of what conservatism is, and I think that does change your right. intellectual perspective on all No, I, I actually agree. Um, I think that's very important. And I mean, I can go pretty deep with that if you want. I think about that in terms of, of Heidegger, um, of all things. Heidegger <laughs> had this concept, and I can't say it in German. It starts with a G, Gewürftheit, or something like that. It means flung, flungness, having okay. been flung into the world. And he has this concept there that Heidegger is impossible to read, by the way, <laughs> but he's very difficult. Um, it turns out he was one of the mentors to these Frankfurt, to the Marcuse, the big Frankfurt school guy. So there's okay. a connection there, too. And he was a very um, Hegelian thinker. So these guys are all in the big Hegelian tent. Marx was as well. Marx was openly a left Hegelian okay. uh, under Hegel's philosophy of, of how the world works. And this flungness is that... Rather, so where you're pointing at the conservative mentality is, you know, the world is ugly, life is messy, human nature is flawed. We do the best we can with that. Theirs is, the world is broken, we can fix it. Mm -hmm. And that's a yes. very, I mean, I think it's the difference between arrogance and humility. Right. Right. Very it's, much. It's, and, I, and on a religious level for, you know, Christian theologian types, it's, it's the difference between theology and Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And it, you, that, that's actually where the flungness idea comes from. It's just, Gnosticism begins with the idea that you've been flung into a world that's beyond repair. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that the gods have lied to us, mm -hmm. you know, the garden was, is a lot, it's not the paradise. The Garden of Eden's not paradise. The garden is a prison, and God has put us in it. If you just eat the fruit off that tree, you'll know. 
right. gnosis. You'll right. have knowledge. Right. And this, I mean, so we say, you know, this is as old as, you know, 1920s. That's a Genesis, baby. Yeah, you know, exactly. That does, right? That's like that's like the beginning of Genesis. That's like right. Genesis three. Right. So you know that's early on in, in in the you know the book of the oldest of all ideas, and so it's like okay, uh, and there is this difference though then that humility versus arrogance because I mean the argument that I made is a warning about um, insulating yourself from reflection. Right, and which can afflict anybody. Christians, for example, who have the "well, I got right with God," and you know this is like a trope. And you get the whole like branches of Christianity that all the other Christians criticize because, you know, they, you know, sin however they want. You know, get caught in a bathroom or whatever. Well, I got right with God. Everything's okay. You know, and it, there's no reflection. There's no correction. So anywhere you catch yourself where you feel like you have a moral exit mm-hmm. from that reflection you've lo- you've left the po- path of wisdom and you can set right. yourself up and i feel like the left has actually done that with racism since the civil rights movement in the 60s and they're having their reckoning and that word is being used appropriately by the people using it but not for the country right. for the only part of the country they acknowledge as not deplorable that right. they haven't written off already and then on the other hand though your argument is very important because there is this once you get away from that bubble this idea of imperfection and trade-off and humility and accepting that we make mistakes and forgiveness right. and reconciliation and uh, you know all of these kind of virtues that a functioning society is really built upon, um, which we don't see in the right. woke. You know, you had a bad tweet when you were 14 and somebody finds it and your career is the over, right? Destroy the career in life. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, well, not until you, you know it's useful to do so because it's all a power grab. Well, it's fair, yes. Yeah, yeah. The moment of their choosing to destroy yeah, a career. That's life. right. So right. it's a sort of Damocles right. for them. And right. so you you really do have to appreciate that the, the value system they're operating in is also you know rooted in that arrogance of it's not us that has a problem, it's the world. So we're going to, we're the appointed elite that know how to fix it and we're mm-hmm. going to set it right versus this kind of more humble approach whether we call it conservative or not doesn't matter this more humble approach that says the world is as it is and life is messy and bad Mm -hmm. things happen and people mess up and how do we make the best of this mess right together right but volitionally together teamwork not collectivism right Uh, exactly right teamwork not collectivism i think that's so important and not everybody's going to come along for the ride and that's a choice that they will make but the society that that we live in here today in the United States was founded on this concept, basically. The world's imperfect. The Constitution, you know, one of the amazing things, too, is, is you see everything we've been talking about today, all attempts at workarounds of that framework in the Constitution. That's, that's exactly right. It tells you how durable it is. It's really, truly amazing. I mean, yeah. on one hand, you can say it's from a small group of 13 colonies uh, growing into the most powerful nation state in the history of humanity by orders of magnitude. That's amazing that that document can govern throughout that entire time and be adaptable enough to, uh, again, <clears throat> learn or, or to be able to be uh, amended to express, to, to, well, to spread its promise to everybody. That's amazing. But then to now still today be putting uh, leftist power grabbers and people that want to oppress others, still putting them in a position where they have to try desperately to work around it. It, it is pretty amazing. And, Again, you talk about that document and coming out of the locking philosophy it did, built upon the Enlightenment. Incredible thought was put into it, which is why everybody's hair in the back of their neck should always stand up if and when they hear people talk about our outdated Constitution. Yeah, well, Because you hear that, right? That's right. The old framework that needs to go. It's, it's based on a very simple idea. One very simple idea, really, at the heart of the whole thing. I feel very Adam Smith sitting here. But that, that, that one very simple idea is if you manage your own and take responsibility for it, you get to also take the risk of tripling or doubling or quadrupling Absolutely. or blowing your own up to, a, to Google, Google or Amazon proportions. Right. right? If right. you take care of your own and take responsibility for it, you also can either keep it or grow it. Right. And if you don't want to take the risk, keep it. If you want to take the risk, maybe you grow it, maybe you lose. But this right. is the American dream. You get to play that gamble, and it's your choice. Exactly. And if you, you know, not to wax too biblical on you, but it's my actually my favorite Bible verse. I'm terrible at the numbers. It's in Matthew 25 or 3, okay. one or the other. But at any rate, it's, you know, you've been faithful over a few things. that will make you master over many. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very, I ran into it in college and just said it all the time to myself. And it was like, I don't really care what number it is. I just have to you just remember to, the, yes, remember it's the, not the, yeah. it's not the, the, the number that matters. It's, it's what, what it means. Right. It turns in, you type in faithful over a few things and Google will tell you immediately where it is. Right. Um, but it's in Matthew. And so that mentality is really what it's based on. Again, you know, timeless wisdom. If you are responsible over your own, because you have, you know, everything's all stakeholder this, stakeholder yeah. that today. That's the buzzword of the century right now. Yeah. Stakeholder, sustainability, right. blah, blah, blah. If you, if you are responsible, you are the biggest stakeholder in your own. Mm-hmm. And if you are responsible with it, then you can grow. Right. That's the American dream. That's the American promise. That's, the, that's half of the secret sauce in that constitution or in, you know, wealth of nations or whatever it happens to be. Right. And it's been again, intentionally degraded and run down and to, to hear, again, maddening to hear people that have benefited from all that has been offered through that constitution turn around and slyly say, and now we need to get rid of this. I, I can't remember. It is a Silicon Valley technologist who came out and, and really, it, I don't remember the exact word, but like something like the framework is just old and dusty, needs to go. Mm, yeah, it's been yeah. repeated many times. Well, yeah, it would be for them because they want to, you know, use the fact that we're in the same situation we were at the end of the 19th century, where the titans of the most exploding industries had found ways to gain power that rivaled state power, whether that was, you know, the the railroads, the oil, you know, steel, whatever it happened to be. And the industries now are finance and tech, et cetera. And so they don't want to be bound by that old dusty document. They don't want to be bound by those principles because they have found a way to kind of get big enough to where it constrains them. Right. And in fact, it constrains them as it should. Because, by the way, I said half of the secret sauce is that simple recipe. The other half is actually that the Constitution is designed to minimize and prevent the concentration of power, the yeah. centralization right. of power. Correct. Right? That's the whole idea. It's quite literally checks and balances. The checks right? and balances, quite literally. Right. Divided powers. Um, mm-hmm. The entire premise of liberalism is, oh, anybody can do the experiment if it's mm-hmm. science. Anybody can cast their vote if it's democracy. So right. you, anybody, you can believe whatever you want. You want to go make up your own religion tomorrow? Great. You want to go down back to Madison and worship the rock? That's your business. <laughs> that's your religion? Okay. You know, that's right. your business. And that's completely protected. By the Constitution, right. which means you now have decentralization of ideology. Right. Right? No priest gets to tell you what to have. You have decentralization of property. That's capitalism. Right. The king doesn't own everything. The lord that you happen to have to swear fealty to and raise the sword for, right. or I guess a plow or whatever, doesn't own everything. You right. own yours. And you're responsible for yours in exchange. And so that is the rest of the se- I mean now we've got the Dr. Formula Dr. Pepper formula worked out yeah. that made made it you know where they can even make it diet and it tastes good right. and, <laughs> and it does yeah and I know Dr. it's Pepper crazy pretty good no I yes and this is exactly what we need to fight for and that's why we're having this conversation what and we is you think to the future we've talked a lot about the problems but we mixed into solutions and we're I think most importantly sharing with the audience, what matters and, and what to look for in terms of identifying the problems of critical race theory, the foundations of it, and how you get after it. What makes you hopeful for the future? Well, I mean, they'll start with something a little out of left field, is if you actually read the myth of Pandora's box, because we like to say Pandora's box has been open, whether that's the, the devices, the internet, mm-hmm. the cell phones, the critical race theory mainstreaming Mm -hmm. the the pandemic whatever pandora's box is open do you know what the last thing at the bottom of pandora's box was tell me hope yeah hope is the last thing at the bottom and so what gives me the most hope is that um you know we're we're in a species of, of a lot of ingenuity um what happened in the Enlightenment, and certainly, you know, we could look back to the Greeks and say it kind of happened then, mm-hmm. but it happened on a different level. A flame was lit, right? right? And so people want to put that flame in a box, but it's a flame. It right. will burn the box. Right. It is not an easy flame to put out. The idea that you can think for yourself, the idea that you can actually have some of your own and, and work on it. So what gives me hope when I look around is more and more people realizing <clears throat> For the first time in their lives, because since at least the late 80s when the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union finally, you know, shut down all the way, 
nobody's had to think much about these kinds of threats. We've been pretty cushy for getting on 40 years, 30 years, I should say. And um, people are now awakening to the idea that, wait a minute, this life that we have is stabilizing. It does allow us to build a better life for ourselves and our children. And it might get taken away. Right. And people don't, like, people don't want that. It, that benchmark is so important, and I think that you, you bring up a good point. The fall of the Berlin Wall, prior to that, the benchmark stared you in the face. Right. Correct? And here's the alternative. The, the Soviet Union is going to take ground whenever it can. It's going to oppress people. You can see the bread lines, whatever the New York Times tells you, right? You can yeah. see the bread lines. Um, that benchmark went away, and people got super comfortable, and now... That benchmark, unfortunately, is inside our country. And well, people what did, are saying... I mean, what did Francis Fukuyama write in 1989 when the wall came down? A book titled The End of History. <laughs> oh, it's all done now. Everything's good. You know. I remember, be, I remember hearing in college, yes, the end of history. And so guess right. what, people? History didn't end and you're living in it. And, right. you know, I'm very hopeful, though. Everywhere I go around the country, especially it's been powerful here in, in Wisconsin, again and again and again, I'll tell you, Tennessee was a little wilder. Um, <laughs> they got a little more energy than y'all up here. Um, but we do what we can. <laughs> everywhere I go, I mean, I was just in in Southern California to give you an idea. Every, this energy to take back America, even with you know, I know in California, I bring it up, and the recall just happened, and mm-hmm. it didn't go the way it really should have, and whatever. Um, the energy is, is is different. I mean, I've been yelling into this hurricane for a long time. Right. The energy has changed. Right. I go. I was here, you know, in, in Wisconsin, people are fired up. Every crowd you've brought me in front of is fired up. In Tennessee, they were hooping and hollering. There's a mechanical bull in the room. It was insane. Um, you wouldn't have believed it. In Florida, the energy is like thunderous when I've spoken there, all over the country. But I go to Southern California, and I speak in front of a school board, and people are yelling and cheering and screaming and carrying on, and right. parents are getting up and speaking. And I think they allowed 20 public comments at the okay. school board meeting. And I think 17 of them were passionate we don't want to do this this is in southern california we don't want this we don't want this and like two or three were kind of weak i think we should take critical race theory a little more seriously Mm -hmm. to see what it really says you know and this i was you shouldn't say that when i'm in the room (laughs) so i I helped with that part but i told people what it really says Mm -hmm. like i just read it to them and so (laughs) it's amazing what that does to people so but the energy was very let's get our country back on track and then i went to los angeles which Mm -hmm. you know i was outside i was in orange county that's a little more conservative i got into los angeles that's the you know the belly of the western beast or one of them and i had all these people coming up to me all through la where you know this organizations i was working with whispering to me and they're always one at a time so they don't know that each other is there they're the parents that haven't figured out that their kids can play together yet right but they're coming up and they say you know what i'm a i'm a democrat and i've i only vote for democrats and i just want to tell you i think you're right about everything you say and i'm a huge fan of yours just don't tell everybody. Don't tell anybody. But else. it was like almost all of them told me that. It's like I need to send them a group email yeah. where they're all blind carbon copy to each other and say, by the way, you have many friends. great meeting you. You might know that there are many friends like, you know, everybody on this email. And so, but yeah, it, it, even there, yeah. even there. And this was, this wasn't like I got invited to this conservative thing. This was for going on TV. Right. So this was a, a right. paramount, right? And the COVID testing was through the roof. They tested me repeatedly. It was the most insane safety protocol I've ever, it's like 10 airports at one time. (laughs) Like every few hours, it's like I got tested again, um, just in case, I guess. But yeah, even there, even there. Well, I will say when when we went to Dane County, we had 400 plus people show up. Uh, It was a night, 400 people in 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 tornado tornado warnings. (laughs) And it was literally, not watches, warnings. Yeah. There were sirens going off on people's phones. And uh, and I will tell you, Dane County, of course, is extremely liberal on average. But uh, we know that many people that came into that meeting not agreeing with us. And they sat and they listened. And to their credit, right? Yeah. That was an uninterrupted program. People listened. And my hope is, to your point, that there were many people listening and processing and learning. And that they go forward and think, okay, I actually didn't think of it that way I'm meeting them every day so you ask me where my hope is I meet them almost mostly digitally I mean I don't leave my house that much but (laughs) when I travel I do but I meet them everywhere I go I meet them digitally I get messages every single day of you know people who have 
completely 180 you know I have some friends who literally put embarrassing, now very embarrassing videos of them dancing when Biden got elected, just celebrating on the internet, (laughs) who have now sent me messages that are like, I think I'm a conservative now, (laughs) you know, and it's like, yep, you know, welcome, we can sort out what that means later, like, but right now let's conserve the union and uh, let it be that, and, but yeah, the change, the very rapid change, the very the passion I see people have for their country again, which I haven't seen. Um, you know, this is a country that hates itself in a weird way right now, and mm-hmm. it's been manufactured. And the, the, the waking up, not in a weird jingoistic way of love of country, love, right. this unity, it's not like 9-11 after 9-11, but it's no. like, it might get there. But it's a lot of light bulbs coming up. There's a lot of light bulbs that, hey, right. wait, no, our communities, our children, our future really is at stake. Right. And this isn't us. Right. This is actually taking us backwards, you know. Right. So there's hope there. There's a lot of hope there. And that's where that's I, I did want to end on that note because uh, I had a feeling you would say that. And we're seeing it, too, across Wisconsin. American that's people. That's where my hope lies, right. in the American people. Right. And to all of our listeners, I urge you to take this message forward, share this podcast with others too. Know that we're talking about serious problems here. We're talking about society ending type stuff, but there is hope going forward. And we don't want to leave you thinking this is, uh, this is not going to get fixed because we're going to fight until we do fix it. That's right. Dr. James Lindsay, we are thrilled to have you in Green Bay. We're going to do a CRT event now. We're going to share much of what we just shared with hundreds of people here in Green Bay. We are thrilled to have you back in Wisconsin, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for joining us on the Right Idea Podcast, and we'll see you around Wisconsin soon. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.